Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, during July, we're telling some of the Bible stories that some of us grew up on or heard when we were kids. And if you didn't hear these stories growing up, don't worry. We're not assuming that, that you know them. And so each week, we're going to open with a video like you just saw that tells the story the way we might have heard it when we were kids. Now, whether you've heard it before or not, the point is we don't want to just hear the story. We want to dig into the story. We want to dig deeper because there's some real meat here for folks who who are seeking God, who want to know him better. In many cases, you may realize that the stories were maybe a little bit sanitized for us as kids or, or simplified. And the fuller story is is even more amazing, maybe even more unbelievable. There was a teen who hadn't been to church before, and he went with a, a friend of his who did go to church. And when he got home, his father asked him about what he'd learned. And, and the teen said, well, the pastor told us about the Jews being chased to the Red Sea by the Egyptians. The, the Jews then built a bridge over the Red Sea and crossed over the bridge. And just as they got to the other side, as the, as the Egyptians were starting to get onto the bridge and cross over the bridge, they blew up the bridge and all of the Egyptians drowned. And the father said, now, son, is that really how the pastor told you the story? And he said, well, not exactly, but the way he told it, you'd never believe it. Well, that's the way it is sometimes. The story of Moses and, and specifically a burning bush that, that doesn't burn up may seem pretty unbelievable, but there's so much more here. And so that's the story we're beginning with here today. We're going to be working in Exodus chapters 2 and 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there or the Version Bible app, you can use that. Or in your bulletins was an, is an insert that has all the scriptures listed that you can uh, follow along with and some places to fill in notes and, 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 and take notes along the way. And to get a handle on our story, we're going to just back up a little bit and reveal a little bit of history, a little bit of geography so that we can kind of put all this in context. And it begins with a man named Abram, who was later called Abraham, who uh, was here down in a place called Ur. Now, this is modern-day Iraq, and uh, this is what's called, um, well, he, he's called by God to go to Canaan, or is modern-day Israel. The thing about it is he doesn't go this way because Arabian Desert, this is very hot. This, for, your, for geography, this, the, the way the rivers, the Euphrates and Tigris rivers goes, creates what's been called the, the Fertile Crescent. And so people travel this way and this way, going back and forth. And so Abram travels to Haran and then finally to Canaan, to the, to the, promised, the land promised to him. And um, he became known, God called, renamed him Abraham, and entered into a covenant with him. And um, that covenant extended to his son, Isaac, who had a son, 
Jacob, who also received that covenant. Jacob was later renamed by God Israel. And so when we talk about the people of Israel, we're talking about the ancestors, the children, if you will, of Israel, whose grandfather was Abraham, whose father was Isaac, and whose name Jacob was later called Israel. And these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have historically been called the patriarchs, the fathers, if you will, of the Judeo-Christian faith. So God renewed his covenant that he made with Abraham with both Isaac and with Jacob. Jacob, you may recall, or Israel, had 12 sons, including Joseph. And Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. And so here they are in Canaan, and he is taken all the way down here into Egypt, into this area himself. Uh, while there, uh, he's first imprisoned, but later becomes, uh, by, the, by faithfulness in God, becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And eventually uh, brings his father, Joseph, or Israel, and the remaining sons, uh, about 70 of them, sons and, and wives and children, bring them to Egypt. So you have them coming into Egypt, a people of about 70. And over successive generations, the Israelites, also known as the Hebrews, fall out of favor with Pharaohs as they become to be more and more of the Hebrews. And the, and the, Israel, the, the Egyptians begin to worry that they're going to be too many. They're going to uh, side with our enemies. And therefore, they enslaved them. They turned them into slaves. Eventually, there would be a Pharaoh who comes along who commands that because there are now so many of the Hebrews, he commands the death of all the Hebrew baby boys. And, and there's a whole other wonderful story about a, a baby boy who's placed in a basket in reeds along, a, a, along the Nile River who's found by Pharaoh's daughter who claims him as her own and gives him the Egyptian name, Moses. So... Here we have Moses, a Hebrew, yet he is raised as the daughter, as the son of, of the Pharaoh's daughter. So he's raised in the, in the royal court, but he never forgets his Hebrew heritage. And so 40 years later, as an adult, he has been witnessing the, the mistreatment of his people, the Hebrew people. And one day, seeing an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he steps in and in defense of that Hebrew ends up killing the Egyptian. We read then in Exodus chapter 2 in verse 15, it says, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Now, Midian was east of Egypt. Here we have another map. Okay. Uh, here's Egypt. Here's Canaan or Israel. And uh, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee up here, over here was, was uh, Iraq or Ur. And here is the land of Midian. Uh, on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba in what is today, modern day, Saudi Arabia. So this is the location that he flees from up here across difficult terrain to get away from Pharaoh and finally settles in that in that area. And while there, he marries Zipporah, the daughter of a Midian priest named Ruel or, or Jethro, and Moses becomes a shepherd. Now, let me just tell you, I'm not, I don't quite understand always why they keep renaming some of these guys. You know, there's, there's Jacob and then there's Israel, the same person. Ruel becomes Jethro, but these are the same people. And 
Moses becomes established in this life. He's married, he's settled in, he, he feels like he can never go back to Egypt. He's a long way away from anything or anyone. And so over a period of 40 years, he adjusts to this whole new life. Now, th- think about that. 40 years. For some of you, that's longer than you've been alive. Okay? Some of you, it may be a little, you may have lived more than 40 years, but not a whole lot more because we're a fairly young congregation. So the, the reality is 40 years is a long, long, long time to get adjusted to a different kind of life, to live a whole different lifestyle, to become a shepherd, to raise a family, to become very ingrained in that lifestyle. So then we, we keep moving in Exodus to verse 23, and it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt, who had sought to kill Moses, died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered the covenant he had made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God is going to, therefore, show himself to be faithful to the promises he made to those patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hundreds of years earlier, and he's going to do it through now what seems like the most unlikely way, through a man named Moses, who has been gone for 40 years, who's lost all influence, who's probably forgotten most of his experiences in the royal court, who is a a settled family man of 80, of 80. I mean, how many of us would think at the age of 80, we're not really thinking about going off and doing something else. So we come to chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, we're not sure of the exact location of Horeb or what has also been called Mount Sinai. Uh, Tradition locates it in this area, and, and in a minute we'll show you kind of a picture of that landscape but it's really kind of hard to know. We, we don't know absolutely certain, but we believe it is located here. So here, here's Moses has been over here in the land of Midian. He has been feeding his, taking care of his sheep. And as a shepherd would do, he leaves often for weeks at a time to lead them out to find good pasture. And obviously has gone around here and come back down into this area. So he's a long way away. And the impression we get is that he's wandered farther than usual into an area he's never been before when suddenly God breaks into his life. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, obviously, Moses, a shepherd who's been out in the wilderness for a lot of his life, knows what a fire looks like. He's probably the night before set up a fire of wood to cook his meal to keep him warm in the desert air. So seeing a fire in, in, in the wilderness is not so unusual, but seeing a fire in which the bush is not being consumed, 
That is something he's never seen before and, and, and is, in fact, miraculous. And he decides he needs to check this out. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And we just sang about holy ground. That's where that reference comes from, is this place in Scripture. This is definitely not a typical experience. A typical experience for Moses, a typical experience for any of us. He's out in the middle of nowhere, sees a bush being burning but not consumed. And now a voice is speaking to him coming from that fire. Now, looking back, Moses, who wrote this, who wrote Exodus, who wrote Genesis, Exodus, these these books... Um, he understands as he's writing it many years later that this was God and, and God is calling to him. But in these first moments, he doesn't know what's happening. He does not know whose voice this is. We, we have no indication that Moses has ever had an, an encounter, a personal encounter with God before, though we can be pretty sure he's heard stories from the time of the patriarchs. And the first thing God tells him is to keep his distance and what's more to take off his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. And the word holy in the original Hebrew language means separate or, or different or set apart, unlike anything else, something that does not, isn't like all the other experiences. What has been ordinary, ordinary ground, ordinary place to feed sheep, ordinary mountain, has now, with God's presence, become holy ground and therefore set apart for God's purposes. See, God is the creator of all that, all that there is. He, he, he's not a part of his creation. He is not a creation, something that somebody made. And so he's, he's totally unlike or, or totally different and therefore separate from all there is. He is holy and being all-powerful, being all-knowing, being all-loving, being all-good makes him even more unlike any of his creations. And, and even scary. I mean, imagine, if you would, that you're coming into the presence of someone who is ultimately good, who is completely good, who is kind and loving in everything they do. And it casts a shadow on us as we, as we stand there in the presence of somebody like that and we feel unworthy and we feel well, how far we fall short. It's... A hard experience to stand in the, at the foot of perfection. And that's what Moses is doing. He doesn't completely comprehend whom he's encountered, but it's amazing. And, and God then tells him to treat this time with reverence. And, and as Moses does that, then God tells Moses whom he really has encountered. Verse 6 God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And and then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. In verse 3 that we've just seen, before he understood whom he was seeing, he looked at the bush. He was curious. He wanted to find out about it. But now that the voice has told him he has encountered God himself, the God of his people, he feels afraid. He feels unworthy to even look upon this manifestation of his God. And I want to tell you, unless we have some sense of who God is, it it may be hard for us to not look at this passage and not see it as any more than maybe just superstition on the part of Moses. But that is not what Moses is feeling. He is, he's in awe. He, he's amazed. In fact, he really is afraid. Afraid because he recognizes This God who created everything, this God who spoke the universe into existence is talking to him, is right there, his manifestation right in front of him. He's in awe. He's afraid. He understands why this is holy ground, that he's not not worthy to even hear God's voice, much less be in his presence. But God has a purpose in this more than in revealing himself to Moses. It's not just to engender awe in Moses, although that is certainly a part of it. And certainly something he desires in all of us is a sense of awe and reverence of, of who he is. For Scripture tells us God has heard the groaning, the suffering of his people, and he is about to do something. In verse 7 it says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And the know here is not just I, I know about them. It's I, have, I am there. I understand it. It's, it's, it's visceral. It's real to me. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Moses understands. He himself, 40 years earlier, watched his people be oppressed. It raised something up in him, an anger, a a, a fire that made him step in and try to save one of his fellow Hebrews and ended up killing a man. And so to hear that this God, the creator, the God of his people now knows and understands and, and is going to do something sounds fantastic. But then we come to verse 10. Where God says, come, saying to Moses, come, because I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Uh Uh-oh. That's not what he wanted to hear. As long as it was, I'm coming to do this, I'm going to do this. Yeah, God, man, you go for it. I'm on your side. Yeah, I I, I want to see my people. But then when he says, and I'm going to use you, it's all of a sudden, what? What are you talking about? You know, it's like, you got to be kidding me. What was the best news ever becomes the worst news ever. 
Moses says to God, verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, the king, and and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now remember, Moses had once been welcomed in Pharaoh's court. He knew the lay of the land as Joseph and the Israelites had been a part of that. And and now, though, as an extended period, he's been an outcast, as the Hebrews now also are. He's been this shepherd for 40 years. The man is 80. I mean, how many 80-year-olds set out for something new? He is abundantly aware of how comfortable he is, how, how, how shortcomings that he has make it seem ridiculous that God would ever consider him. And I'm sure... In a life that has become comfortable. I mean, you do something for 40 years, the idea of disrupting that to go and confront the most powerful man alive, to lead a people that numbers in the hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions to a distant land that you haven't even seen. I don't think it was probably very appealing. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I, stand, I stand here and as I read this, I relate to Moses. You want me to do what, God? You want me to do what? You want me to preach? You want me to, to give up this, to do that? How in the world can he possibly do this? Well, God tells him. Very simply, verse 12. I will be with you. I will be with you. And of course, depending on the, the point of view of the person hearing that, it's either the best news ever or it's the worst news ever. And I'm in big trouble. I mean, think about it. What, what is your attitude to God when God calls you to do something? When He asks you to step out of your comfort zone? When He says, I think you could help here. I think you could make a difference over here. I think you could share your story with this person. Do you believe that in any sense you have something to offer? Do you trust him? Because in many ways, Moses is standing in for you and me in our daily lives. Moses is is facing exactly what every follower of Jesus Christ faces. That God calls us to. Over the next chapter and a half, God's going to offer to to Moses several miraculous signs to to confirm to him that God is with him and and, and he'll be doing God's will. But But the crux of the issue for Moses is, you know, what, what, before you do any of this, what does this all mean? Can, can I trust you, God? I, I mean, in the big picture, sure, I can trust God. Everybody trusts God, right? But, but can I? Can I trust God in, in the daily things, in the regular things? Or is, is God going to make me into a fool? Is He going to make me look weird to my neighbors or to my classmates? Is He going to put me in an impossible position? where people are going to ridicule me or I'm going to lose my job. And so Moses wants to know more about 
who this God is. In verse 13, then Moses says to God, have I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What am I going to tell them? I mean, if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I, I got this great deal for you. I want you to go out and do it. And you go tell somebody, yeah, this person told me they can really help me. Well, who was it? Uh, I don't know. They didn't tell me their name. So God is saying, hey, I'm going to tell you my name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, you know all those guys, has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, listen, the name I am who I am, or some translations, I, I am that I am, or I am that I, or I, I will be who I will be. Uh, that's not the kind of name that rolls off your tongue. That's not, the, oh, hey, I am who I am. Can you see calling one of your friends that? But, but, but the point here is, as strange as it may seem, the, the name is more than a name. It's also a statement of his being. God is the God who is. The God who is, the God who always has been, the God who always will be. He simply is. He stands outside of time. He stands outside of space. He is. While all of our lives come and go, He is. While the world changes and, and tectonic plates move around and rocket ships come and go and whatever you may say, think or see, God is. And, and as He will reveal later in the Bible, He is in fact the only God. There are no other gods, including Pharaoh, who considered himself a god, or the, the other Egyptian gods. And in fact, the name became so sacred to the, to the Hebrews that they wouldn't pronounce it, but use the consonants for the name Y-H-W-H. And, and when the vowels are added in, uh, for pronunciation's sake, we get Yahweh as God's name. So here's, here's the name as we put it in English. Here are the letters. We add these in. And when language was being translated to English, they, they kind of transliterated this into this, Jehovah. So in some of the older English translations, this is the word you'll see. But in some of the newer translations, what they now do is they will use the word Lord. But the word they use here as Lord is either all caps or with small caps and, and to signify this name. When you see this word, especially in the Old Testament, it means God is using his name or the people are using a stand-in for his name. And it's different from the word Lord where this is lowercase. Let's, yeah. See, here's the Lord, the name, is different from this word. This word means somebody who is a master, somebody who is in charge, somebody who, who has authority. And that is also appropriate for God, but when applied to God's name, this is his name. This is his title or what he is. But this is more than that. This is about who he is. He is God. He is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. And so in answer to the question that Moses asked, Moses 
is to tell the people of Israel that Yahweh, the Lord, who was the God of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel, who did great and, and miraculous things in their day, amazing things, and there are many stories in Genesis that they did, that God who did the miraculous, who, who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, who, who created all of life, that God is with them. And he signifies that by giving to them for the very first time his name. Not his title, not his words about his nature, but his name, which in fact does reveal his nature. The Lord, who is the only true God, who created all there is, who, who saved their ancestors, who is all-powerful, all-good, that God is with Moses and with the Hebrew people. That God is on their side. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it may be kind of hard to grasp, and I was trying to think of an analogy. And it was like, imagine somebody comes up and threatens me, okay? And I'm, I'm, I'm just a pipsqueak and, I'm, and, and all that kind of stuff. But I say, you know, you may, you may threaten me, but you know who's standing behind me? Standing behind me is the entire United States military. The Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, and the Coast Guard. They're all here. All their ships, all their planes, all their artillery, all their weapons, all their men and women. They're all standing right there. So when you mess with me, you're not messing with me. You're messing with them. And if you want to mess with them, well, you go right ahead. <laughs> but it seems kind of stupid. You know? I mean, that on an infinitely greater scale is what God is saying to Moses. Look, you think you're just you or you and that people. But me, the God who created everything, who spoke and the universe came into being. I'm with you. I'm on your side. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It's irrelevant. I am with you. In Jeremiah, he said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Now think about that. That's the kind of God we're talking about. That's the God who is with us, who was with Moses. Is anything... Could, can you imagine saying that? Is anything too hard? I can think of a lot of hard things. And God's saying, huh, That's not hard to me. There's nothing too hard to me. And to prove it to the Israelites and to Pharaoh, God offers Moses several signs, including that they would return as a people to Mount Sinai, this vast group of people, that he could turn his staff into a snake, that he could put his hand into his cloak and pull it out and be covered with leprosy, put it back in and it would come out fine, that he could turn the water of the Nile into blood, that there would be 10 plagues upon the people. And in fact, God offers one other really interesting sign. In verse 21, he says, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. Now remember, he's talking to a people who have been slaves, who have nothing except minimum shelter, minimum possessions. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor 
speaking of the Egyptians, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Abraham had predicted back in Genesis 15 that his descendants would be slaves, but that they would also leave that foreign land coming out of slavery with riches. And Exodus 12 tells us a few chapters later that in fact that's exactly what happened. The Hebrews go to the Egyptians and ask and the Egyptians give them wealth. And so it seems like, oh great, they're, they're just giving them a bunch of stuff, a bunch of money. How nice. But, but God has a bigger purpose than just supplying riches to his people. And it relates to the building of the tabernacle many months later. The tabernacle, which would be the, the symbol of God's dwelling place in the midst of the Israelites in the wilderness. And, and this is the really cool part is we jump to Exodus 25, still a part of the same book. In verse 1 it says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. Now, when, when the Israelites asked, they had no clue. They thought, God's just, God's just showing off. He's just piling stuff on for us. But now, months later, He's not just showing off. He has provided two the Israelites, the very offerings they will freely give to make the tabernacle, the place of worship. They never saw it coming. They had no clue. God had already provided. God's wisdom and power was so great that he inspired this to happen. Slaves with nothing could give abundantly. Out of gratitude, the riches God had already provided them from the Egyptians. I mean, this, is, this story is part of the understanding of the Christian tithe. That God has already provided us everything, our lives, our resources, everything we have, so that we can return back a portion to God of that which he first gave us. We don't understand it that first. When I'm born, I'm not thinking, okay, I'm going to give something back to God. I'm going to use my life in service to him. I'm just trying to survive. But along the way, God begins to demonstrate that he has provided everything we need to do everything he's called us to do, to give back. Our problem is we don't realize the abundance he has already given us. Now, certainly there were hardships along the way, but God did everything he said he would do, bringing his people out of slavery into an, ultimately a new and wonderful land. And God is still doing that today. He's still seeking to free us, maybe not from slavery from a, a tyrannical government, but slavery from sin and death. A slavery that seems, on the surface of it, to have no way out. And yet He invites us to join into His work, providing everything He has provided, everything we need to do, all that He has called us to do, if we trust Him, if we follow Him, if we walk in the footsteps of Moses. But we have to walk first. We have to live by faith first before we see the results. The, Moses had to go in faith to Pharaoh. He had to go in faith to the people. And invite them out. And yes, they complained. And yes, they thought, we're never going to get out of here. But it happened. And it would not have happened if they had not started taking steps. 
I want to tell you, we're not at all unlike Moses, who have lots of excuses of why God could never use me. God could never work through me. God could never make a difference in my workplace. God could never change those people in my family. God could never use my resources. God could never use my skills. But the thing is, and what this story shows is it's never about us. It has always been about our God. Moses keeps saying, I can't do this. I I don't have the ability. I don't have, I don't have. It's I, I, I. It's all about him. But God said, I am the great I am. I am sufficient. I am enough for everything. And the good news is that as it was then, God is with us today. Jesus demonstrated that. He he died and, and rose And he said, stay here to receive power from on high. On that first Pentecost, the Spirit of God came to live in those first followers of Jesus Christ. So that you and I who follow Jesus always have the I am in us. He's not out there somewhere. He's not some distant thought. He's not some God made up by human hands. I am with you. And yes, all of us are going to worry. We're going to have the fear of what can I do? And, and Moses, like Moses, we, we often feel totally inadequate, totally taking us out of our comfort zone. There's no way. I've been doing this for 40 years. And the good news, though, today is that God can use us still because we have the I am what what's in our past like Moses had that God can use what's the good stuff what's the the training the education the experiences but also what's the hard stuff what what are the bad things that have happened in my life that in fact God can take and redeem and use see the truth is I didn't come up with this statement, but I love it. God can turn our tests into testimonies, our messes into messages, our trials into triumphs, and our victims into victories. That's what God does. That's how God operates. For instance, we have this fantastic ministry many of you know about called Celebrate Recovery that has helped hundreds, probably thousands, work through hurts, habits, and hang-ups in their lives that meets on Monday nights. But, but you know what the secret of that ministry is? The secret of any God-blessed ministry is that part of it is the, is the leaders themselves have overcome so much themselves with God's help. The, the people who lead that ministry weren't people that were like perfect Hey, look at me. I don't have any problems in the world, so I'm going to go help. No, the people who lead in that ministry would be the first to tell you that they were broken, that they were hurting, that they were struggling. And God used them. And the other part is then their willingness to allow God to use their trials for His triumphs. To take what is broken and make something new. I want to tell you, you and I are no different. 
God can use anyone whom He calls. And He calls everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are being called. You can do abundantly more than you know or imagine. He can use you. He has a plan for you. He calls you to that. But like Moses, it can seem impossible. What do I have? How can I do that? But see, it's, it's not about Moses' history. It's not about Moses' ability. It's not about your history or your ability. It's ultimately about God. And that's what we've got to think and see differently. Moses kept raising those issues. Who am I? What can I do? How can I? I can't speak well. But, but who Moses is, is never the question. Rather, it is who is with Moses and with you and with me. Moses' constant, I, 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 is echoed by God's, I am. I am. See, God will never calls you that He won't equip you. But He won't give you what you need ahead of time. He won't give it to you until you begin to walk in faith. You say, well, I, I, I might want to help in that area, but, but God's got to prove it first. No, you start walking and let God prove in the walking until you trust Him. Because He doesn't want us trusting in our own abilities. He wants us to realize, just as Moses had to come to realize, it wasn't Moses that got those people out of that land. It was God. And it's not Moses or you and me who are going to do anything great for God today. It's going to be God working in and through you and me. The Israelites discovered this. And so did those first patriots 241 years ago. See if these words don't reflect not just 241 years ago, but reflect the state of the Israelites 3,500 years ago. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impelled them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. On July 4th, 1776, those were only words They were not proven. They had not changed their world one bit. But those patriots trusted their God to lead them to a new promised land, a new nation. And you know what? Today we enjoy the fruit of their faithfulness. And today God calls you and me to plant seeds so that those who come after us will enjoy that fruit. He calls us to step out in faith, 
to trust when it seems impossible, when it seems I don't have anything to offer. Of course you don't, but God does. And that has always been the point. And yes, the journey will, may very well be hard. It may, it may not be pretty, but it will be amazing. God is still looking for men, women, students, children who are willing to trust His call on their lives to walk in faithful righteousness for the cause of Jesus Christ. He is still doing that today with you and me if we will trust Him, if we will follow in the steps of Moses. That may be a big challenge for some of you. Maybe you felt God calling you to do something and it seems unlikely or impossible or crazy. Our prayer team is going to be here on the far sides and they would love to pray with you about that to give you that opportunity. In just a few minutes, we're going to, for those who choose to remain to celebrate communion after the service, we're going to be celebrating communion right here. Uh, if, if you are going to join us in communion, we invite you, if you have children, to go pick them up and come back. And to, if you're in the risers, if you'll move down to the floor area. I mean, here's, here's one of the cool things about this. Leading communion this morning is a, is a, is a woman of our church who 20 years ago, nobody would have ever considered her somebody who would be working in a church today. And by the grace of God... She is now a pastor, pastor of arts ministry here at Gateway Community Church, Betsy Burke. And she'll be... And I guarantee you, if you would have asked Betsy five years ago, she would have said, no way. God does the impossible when we trust Him. And so this... This very act of communion is a testimony that, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Jesus Christ, is the God who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, something that seems impossible, that you and I might have life and have it abundantly. Before you go, just a reminder, there's an insert of some of the things in the bulletin. If you're a guest today, myself and some friends would be out here and we'd love to say hello to you as you leave. And to close this service, we want, I want to do, a, instead of a prayer, I want to do a benediction, but we're going to all do it together. We're going to sing together, God bless America. So would you stand and join and let's bless this nation and believe that God is not finished with us and God can do the impossible through us. Make sure you're singing with me. God bless America.
Amen. God blessed Moses. God blessed America. See you this week. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.